damage for two of the nursing rooms, but there was no injuries among the staff or the patients. But the situation remains very dangerous with Israeli tanks are in front of the hospital, besieging the hospital, continuous gunfire and bombardment surrounding the hospital. No one is able to go in or go out of the hospital. There is no food, no water, extreme shortage of medicine and medical supplies inside the hospital. The situation is beyond dire. Nabal, I asked you about Israeli response. I want to ask you about the U.S. government response and how important it is. This is a clip of State Department spokesperson Matt Miller in a news conference on Wednesday. He was questioned about the killing of six-year-old Hind and her family by a reporter from The Intercept, Prem Thacker. It's been over two weeks since Israeli forces attacked uh, Hind al-Rab's family, killing her aunt, uncle, and cousins, being her trapped alone in her vehicle. We heard her pleas to the Red Crescent Society. Two medics were sent, all to be blown up, allegedly, by Israeli forces. I wanted to ask about the status of the inquiry into this, just because it seems if the Israeli government, you know, which seemingly does have a pretty sophisticated operation, is prioritizing this, and they don't already know which soldiers to interview, for instance, they have Red Crescent calls, timestamps, the location of the Red Crescent staff to, you know, uh, question and rely on plenty of material to figure out who exactly to um, inquire with and to figure out who to hold accountable. Um, so I want to first ask about the status of this. Sure. So um, I think that question is appropriately directed to the government of Israel. I will say on behalf of the United States, we have made clear to them that we want that incident to be investigated. They have told us they are investigating it. Uh, it's our understanding. Thank you for tuning in to Cable Community Radio during this special programming campaign, All Thrills, No Frills, Volume 3. This February and March, you will hear different marathons and series, all brought to you by our talented programmers. If you'd like to help KBU reach our $22,000 goal by March 16th, go to kboo.fm give or text KBOO to the number 44321 right now. We thank you and you're welcome. Tune in to KBOO throughout February, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. for Black History Future Month our special programming series in celebration of Black heritage. This series aimed to celebrate all aspects of the Black lived experience, from contemporary, political, and social issues to understanding how history impacts our present. Again, that's Black History Future Month, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. throughout the month of February where you will hear interviews from Black creatives, artists, activists, revolutionaries, KBU hosts, musicians, and more. Here on your community radio station, KBOO Portland. Hey, you are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM. And now, your daily volunteer-produced community newscast, the KBU Evening News. Coming up on the KBU Evening News, two weeks into Portland's Central City 90-day fentanyl emergency, and little has been accomplished. A study from OHSU shows switching arms for a multi-dose COVID vaccine can boost one's immune response. And in international news, Vladimir Putin's most high-profile opponent dies in an Arctic penal colony. 
Good evening. This is the KBOO Evening News for Friday, February 16th, 2024. I'm Reed Johnson. And I'm Michelle Coppola. The city of Portland, Multnomah County, and the state of Oregon met Thursday to get an update from the Unified Command since a state of emergency was declared to address the growing fentanyl crisis. And what has been accomplished? Apparently, not much. Abby Stamp is the county's policy lead. Stamp reported that key staff has been hired, there were briefings from social service agencies and law enforcement, and the task force is currently still working on a mission statement. At the briefing, County Commissioner Sharon Myron voiced her frustration with the lack of progress and declared that the presentation, quote, contained nothing of substance two weeks after an emergency declaration, end quote. Commissioner Julia Brim Edwards concurred, saying that she expected clear, measurable goals by this time. Stamp disagreed with the commissioner's assessment, saying that the work is, quote, exactly where it should be since starting on February 1st. COIN News reports that more goals and metrics, as well as tactical work plans, are expected from the Unified Command Force next week. Getting your COVID vaccine in alternating arms could drastically increase immunity, according to a new study from the Oregon Health and Science University. OHSU based the study on 947 participants who received two doses of COVID vaccine. They measured antibody responses in two halves of the group, one half who alternated arms and one half who got both doses in the same spot. The results were surprising, as it was previously assumed that it didn't matter where someone got vaccinated. When people switched arms for each dose, they had about twice the amount of antibodies as those who didn't switch arms. Dr. Marcel Curlin is an associate professor of medicine at OHSU. According to Dr. Curlin, this, quote, would translate into a mortality benefit for those that are most vulnerable to COVID or those most likely to experience a bad outcome, end quote. Reachers, researchers concluded the improved immune response could be similar for other multi-dose vaccines, but further study is needed. The full study is available in the Journal of Clinical Investigation. In northeast Portland, the police recently cleared a vacant lot that served as a makeshift homeless encampment and in doing so displaced an estimated 50 unhoused residents. Kebu's Ezra has more on the story. Portland police raided a vacant lot in northeast Portland where more than 30 unhoused people were living on Tuesday. The lot was a makeshift encampment. Police raided it in response to complaints of noise, gunshots, and drug use. 12 people were arrested on outstanding warrants on the morning of February 13th. 30 were detained, then released, and about 20 ran and were not identified. One neighbor told KGW, quote, I wish the state would help people find a place to live so this wouldn't happen. Those who were detained reportedly spent hours sitting on the sidewalk in handcuffs. Only eight people expressed interest in shelter to the outreach worker who was on site at the time of the raid. One unhoused person, Nova, said, quote, They don't help with housing. They like to say that they'll help and give you resources, but they never do, end quote. Unfortunately, this is the experience for many unhoused people. The raid didn't solve the problem. Unhoused people are still on the vacant property, and the Portland police are doing extra patrols in the area. For KBU News, I'm Ezra. Pacific Power, one of Oregon's largest electric companies, is seeking a major rate hike next year. The company asked the Oregon Public Utility Commission to approve a 16.9% residential rate hike that would add about $30 to the average bill each month. The electric company is apparently trying to raise $304 million to pay for renewable power sources and invest in upgrades to the grid. It also intends to pay for costs associated with wildfires. 
Those expenses include managing vegetation around power lines, paying higher wildfire insurance premiums, and creating a catastrophic fire fund. Pacific Power's parent company, Pacific Corps, is facing numerous lawsuits related to its alleged role in the Southern Oregon wildfires that destroyed 170 homes in 2020. Pacific Power has already agreed to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to settle some of those lawsuits. The company has estimated in court filings that it could face $2.4 billion in wildfire-related losses. Pacific Power has around 574,000 customers in Oregon. The state's largest electric utility, Portland General Electric, has more than 875,000 customers. PGE already raised its rates by 18% this year. In more utility news, a recent phone poll going around suggests Portland General Electric is mulling a plan to cut trees in Forest Park. That's in order to upgrade their transmission lines. They're trying to figure out how people would feel about cutting trees on three acres of land in Forest Park above Linton in order to boost electricity transmission. Forest Park spans 5,200 acres. PGE says there's an increase in demand for power, so they're considering upgrading their equipment. They say it will help meet those growing needs for power and increase the resiliency of the grid. The increase in demand for power is coming from industrial customers, so high-tech companies like Intel can use it. Oregon is poised to take on multiple new semiconductor plants, some of the most energy-intensive operations in the world. A typical plant uses the same amount of energy in a year as 50,000 homes. Willamette Week reports that pollsters are also gauging favorability of PGE, Intel, Nike, the Forest Park Conservancy, Mayor Ted Wheeler, and the City Council. Nike has announced they plan to lay off approximately 2% of their global workforce, which can mean that more than 1,600 employees will lose their jobs. The announcement was made in a company-wide email from Nike CEO John Donahoe to all Nike staff on Thursday. In the email, Donahoe said that the reason for the layoffs is because the company is, quote, not performing at our best, and that he holds himself and the leadership team accountable for the necessary cost-cutting. KGW reports that the first round of layoffs began today and that it is possible that most will be at the company's Beaverton headquarters. Cutbacks are not expected to impact retail store employees, managers, or distribution site workers. Nike is one of the region's largest employers with more than 15,000 workers in the Portland and southwest Washington area. A landslide on the Amtrak host railroad BNSF means a temporary suspension of service between Portland and Seattle. BNSF has cleared the rails for 48 hours for repairs. Reservations have been updated to reflect the changes. Passengers' bookings were altered to either different trains or different departure days. Fees are waived for passengers who voluntarily change their bookings by calling the reservation center at one 800 USA Rail. The rails are expected to reopen for normal service on Sunday morning. In national news, the Kansas City mayor says a deadly mass shooting could alter future public events in his city. The White House confirms a Russian anti-satellite weapon, and Wisconsin Republicans approve new legislative maps to avoid court-mandated districts. With more on the story, it's Catherine Carley with 2024 Talks. Welcome to 2024 Talks, where we're following our democracy in historic times. I don't think in any way that this is Kansas City. I do think that there is a gun violence challenge in this community and many others, and there certainly is a gun violence challenge as it relates to major events. 
Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lewis says the deadly shooting at a Super Bowl celebration could change public events there. Police say one person was killed and more than 20 injured in a matter of minutes when an argument turned violent. Lucas and other U.S. mayors are calling for gun safety laws, including universal background checks. The White House confirms Russia has what it calls a troubling anti-satellite weapon. House Intelligence Chair Mike Turner publicly urged the information be declassified. White House spokesperson John Kirby says that was already underway when Turner regrettably spoke. Starting with private engagement rather than immediately publicizing the intelligence could be a much more effective approach. Meanwhile, the White House is criticizing Speaker Mike Johnson for declaring a House recess before voting on a Senate-passed foreign aid package. Johnson may refuse to bring the bill to the floor without tough immigration provisions. A New York judge says Donald Trump's criminal hush money trial will start March 25th. The former president is accused of falsifying business records during his 2016 campaign to cover up an affair with porn star Stormy Daniels. Meanwhile, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is defending herself against efforts to remove her from Trump's election interference and racketeering case in Georgia. Willis has acknowledged an affair with special prosecutor Nathan Wade, but denies she benefited financially or that it has any bearing on the case. You're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020. I'm not on trial, no matter how hard you try to put me on trial. The case hasn't been set for trial, and his federal election interference case is waiting on a Supreme Court immunity ruling. Republicans in the battleground state of Wisconsin have approved new legislative maps proposed by Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Majority Leader Devin Lemahue says the state legislature, controlled by the GOP since 2011, could now be up for grabs. Given the circumstance, the legislature is faced with two choices, either pass the governor's maps as is or allow the liberal majority of the Wisconsin Supreme Court to gerrymander the state. But Democrats argue the state's high court should draw new maps so they can go into effect before November. Michigan Republicans have officially ousted their state party chair, Christina Caramo. Party members cited poor fundraising and election denial rhetoric that's alienating voters. Caramo calls her removal discriminatory. Anybody can throw out accusations. It's very cheap. It's very easy. But what claims do they make to substantiate their accusations? Former Congressman Pete Hoekstra got Trump's endorsement and will take over the job. I'm Catherine Carley for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. A conservative group called the Heritage Foundation paints a dystopian picture in their Project 2025 plan for America. That plan to take over the U.S. government may have implications in the 2024 elections. Cable reporter Matea Carlin has more on that story. Those who follow American politics have likely heard some candidates claim the 2024 election could be critical for America to remain a democracy. But one conservative group has taken it a step further and published a plan for what some call a government takeover. The Heritage Foundation's Project 2025 is a detailed plan for the next Republican president to eliminate or transform agencies that enforce civil rights laws. Carrie Baker, a professor of American Studies at Smith College, writes in Miss Magazine this month that a key part of the plan is to, quote, future-proof the changes so they can't be easily undone. What usually happens is a Republican government gets in and puts in place certain policies, and then a Democratic government wins and they reverse some of those policies. What this report is setting out is a strategy to make conservative policies permanent. Baker says, 
the Heritage Foundation targets what it calls, quote, the totalitarian cult known today as the Great Awakening, end quote, with potential changes to agencies such as the CDC, EPA, Health and Human Services, and the Department of Education. The Heritage Foundation did not respond to a request for comment on the report. Baker says the coalition paints a dystopian vision of the GOP administration. In addition to the 887-page policy agenda, it has developed a presidential personnel database of vetted conservatives and founded a presidential administration academy to train loyal bureaucrats. She adds, the material labels Democrats as Marxists, socialists, communists, and cultural elites. Part of this is the attack on elites. You know, they elite means anybody that actually knows anything. The attack on science. I mean, they, they say, oh, these are elites who want to tell us what to do. Well, these are just people that actually, like, know what they're doing. Baker points out the Heritage Foundation and many of the organizations in the coalition are led and funded by billionaire capitalists such as the Koch brothers. She says, much of the funding for the alliance comes from so-called dark money packs, where the funds are difficult or impossible to trace. I think the most important issue is democracy. Are we going to still have a democracy or not? Are we going to have a functioning federal government, a federal government that's actually functioning for the people rather than for the super wealthy? Because that's what they want. For KBU News and the Public News Service, I'm Matea Carlin. The man considered to be Russian President Vladimir Putin's biggest opponent died today. Alexei Navalny was serving a 19-year prison sentence in an Arctic penal colony. He was 47. Navalny had been imprisoned since January 2021. That's when he returned to Moscow after being poisoned by a nerve agent in Germany, something he credits to the Kremlin. Many world leaders hold Russian authorities to be responsible for his death. Other political Putin opponents were silenced by a variety of means, but Navalny used social media to bypass the Kremlin's suppression of independent news outlets. Navalny received a law degree from People's Friendship University in 1998 and did a fellowship at Yale in 2010. Before his arrest, he campaigned against officials' corruption, organized anti-Kremlin protests, and ran for public office. One of his early moves was to buy a stake in Russian oil and gas companies to become an activist shareholder and request more transparency. He was convicted of embezzlement in 2013, calling the prosecution politically motivated. He received a five-year prison sentence, though that was suspended by a higher court. Navalny had actually registered as a candidate for Moscow mayor. Experts speculate that he may have been released to make the mayoral election look more legitimate. Putin never mentioned the activist by name, referring to him as, quote-unquote, that person or similar wording. His subsequent arrest and sentencing sparked massive protests and saw more than 10,000 people detained by police. Listening to the KBU Evening News. Stay tuned after this newscast for Counterspin, your look behind the headlines with fairness and accuracy in reporting. 
At 6, it's Rising Up with Sonali. Then at 7, Civic Cipher. Your weather forecast, it's a low of 39 degrees and windy. Tomorrow, high 42, and there's a 40% chance of rain. Today in history, in 1945, the Alaska Equal Rights Act was signed into law. It was the first anti-discrimination law in the United States, and it was passed after Alaska natives fought against segregation and other forms of discrimination in the state. This coming Sunday is World Whale Day, so our quote of the day is from author Anthony D. Williams, who said, Some of the greatest minds on earth live in the seas. It's Children's Dental Health Month, and dentists say parents should establish good habits in their children early. Poor oral habits are tied to other poor health outcomes later in life. Kibu's Martha Redman has the story. February is Children's Dental Health Month, and experts are stressing the importance of focusing on children's teeth early. Later in life, poor oral health can contribute to harmful conditions outside the mouth, including pneumonia, heart disease, and birth complications. Dr. Natasha Bramley is a pediatric dentist in Portland and the vice president of the Oregon Academy of Pediatric Dentistry. She says it's important to establish healthy habits early. There's a perception that baby teeth are not important because they're going to fall out anyway, but in fact, studies show that if baby teeth are kept healthy, then that sets the stage for healthy adult teeth as well. Bramley says poor oral health can compromise a child's ability to eat, smile, and socialize. The pain often causes kids to miss school and achieve lower grades. Dr. Paul McConnell is dental director for United Healthcare. He says nearly half of children have at least one cavity by age eight. Dental decay in baby teeth may negatively affect the permanent teeth that are developing underneath and also lead to other issues such as pain, infection, or even issues with speaking. Despite being largely preventable, dental decay ranks as the most common chronic condition among children. Bramley says one way parents can encourage good habits is to lead by example. There are lots of tricks and tips your dentist can give you, such as playing their favorite song, allowing your child to brush your own teeth before you brush theirs, different things to make it a fun activity at home and not a chore. For the Public News Service, this is Martha Redmond. In more news about the young ones, child care is hard to find, especially when it's outside of typical daytime hours. A Washington State Department of Children, Youth, and Families budget request would increase incentives for facilities to provide care during non-traditional hours. Eric Tegedoff has the details. Parents often struggle to secure after-hours child care. Advocates want the Washington State Legislature to increase incentives for businesses to provide this service. The Department of Children, Youth, and Families is requesting funds to increase the bonus to $500 a month for facilities that provide care before 6 a.m., after 6 p.m., and on the weekends. Alejandra Alarcon owns three Spanish immersion daycare facilities east of Seattle. She says it's hard to find people to work non-traditional hours. Handling the expenses and the payroll and all the things that we need to have for running the daycare and can give the service that the families need. Lawmakers are expected to release their budgets next week. The legislative session ends March 7th. 
Genevieve Stokes with Child Care Aware of Washington says parents who work in the service industry, hospitals, or agriculture, for instance, often struggle to find care for their kids. So that's left a lot of parents scrambling to figure out alternative options that might not be what their preferred option would be if they had available high-quality care. Stokes says the state has made a lot of investments in child care, but adds the industry is struggling. And full-time care, on average, costs more than tuition to the University of Washington, which is more than $11,000 a year. We're in sort of a bind here. The non-standard hours exacerbates that, but this is true across the board that providers can't afford to provide the care and parents can't afford to pay more for it. For Washington News Service, I'm Eric Tegedoff. The Ute Mountain Ute Tribe plans to open one of the largest solar farms in the U.S., With that story and more, it's Jill Freitas with National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas sitting in for Antonia Gonzalez. On the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation, the tribe has started a project to open one of the largest solar farms in the United States. Clark Adamitis has more. 2.2 million solar panels, 8 miles long and 1 mile wide. That's the dimensions of the proposed Sun Bear Solar Farm just south of Toyak, Colorado, in the heart of the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation. Scott Clough, the Ute Mountain Ute Environmental Programs Director, says the solar farm will be one of the top five largest solar farms in the United States. It is a commercial-scale project on the order of 756 megawatts AC power. Planning has been ongoing for two and a half years, and funding is coming from international renewable energy company, Canigou. According to Canigou's director, Justin Passfield, the project will cost over $1 billion. Passfield says electricity generated from the solar farm will be connected to the Western Area Power Administration line, but it's unclear what regional entities the electricity will be sold to. We're thinking about the power needs within Colorado, but also it makes sense for not to transmit power too far uh, from where you are. Having said that, we're going to be producing a large amount of power, so I'm not sure that all of it will be able to be consumed within Colorado. We as Ute Mountain Ute Tribe have been a fossil fuel tribe with oil and gas for a long time, probably over 50 years. The Ute Mountain Ute Tribe's chairman, Manuel Hart, is excited about the opportunity for the tribe to become a major player in renewable energy. And today with the changes in legislation and global warming and climate change, you can see the impact of what's happening to our world. So renewable is a new future right now. Canago Group says the solar farm will create over 500 local jobs for electricians and laborers, and they're aiming to start producing electricity in 2026 once final approval is given from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. The Bodaway Gap region of Tuba City, Arizona, will have their own health care center after 20 years. TCRHCC will have a groundbreaking ceremony Friday for a new two-story health care facility and is expected to be completed in the fall of 2025. When completed, the center will offer services such as a primary care center, dental clinic, eye clinic, wellness center, mental health clinic, and more. Residents of Bodaway have had to travel 35 miles for health care services at the Tuba City Regional Health Care Center in Tuba City. In 2018, TCRHCC established a limited services part-time clinic out of a mobile building. The need for services started in 2002 when a request was made by the communities of Bodaway, Gap, and Kaibato for a health facility. 
In a statement, TCRHCC CEO Joette Walters said, quote, This is a historic event for the surrounding communities, and it all started with a vision to improve access to health care, end quote. Further event information will be provided on the TCRHCC website at www.tchealth.org. The Aleutic Museum in Kodiak, Alaska has released a set of instructions for making an Aleutic snowfalling parka. This project was supported by the Tongarnak Native Village and the U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs. Produced in partnership with Elder Susan Maluton, the resources provided step-by-step instructions for creating a long, hoodless coat from fabric. The garment is styled like the iconic Kodiak Aleutic snowfalling parka worn by both men and women. The resources are intended to help Aleutic people create cultural garments to share and celebrate their heritage. Education manager Lita Buthin is leading the project. I'm Jill Freitas. It's important to know how to get ready before disaster strikes and how to prepare for an evacuation. Dr. Anthony Lizowitz has more on that story with Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. When hurricanes or wildfires strike, it's important to be able to evacuate quickly. Having a plan in place ahead of time can make all the difference. Before an emergency hits, sign up for text message alerts from your local emergency management office so you get information in real time. When extreme weather is predicted, pack a bag with essential items, such as medications and important documents, and make sure your car is fully charged or gassed up. If you don't have a car, check with your local emergency management office about how people who use public transit should evacuate during a crisis and look up the planned evacuation routes for your community and identify the route you'll take and where you'll plan to stay. You may need to call ahead to identify locations that are pet-friendly or accessible for people with disabilities. When the disaster comes, cell towers may be damaged or the network overwhelmed, making it difficult to stay in touch by phone. So take the time now to identify where and how you'll meet up with your family during a crisis and decide who will pick up kids or elderly parents. Having a plan in place now can help keep everyone safe during a wildfire or weather disaster. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. are listening to the KBOO Evening News for Friday, February 16th, 2024. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call or text us with your breaking news, stories, tips, dining recommendations at 971-245-2158. Our production team for for tonight's newscast includes my co-host, Michelle Coppola, Josh Salem, Matea Carlin, Martha Redman, Ezra, and myself. The producer is Althea Billings, and our engineer is Laura Miller. Special thanks to Eric Tagadoff, Jill Freitas, Catherine Carley, and the inestimable Dr. Anthony Lizowitz. The director of Evening News is Althea Billings. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash evening news. You are listening to the to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Reed Johnson. 
And I'm Michelle Coppola. All of our KBU programs, including the evening news, are supported by our members, fabulous people like you. If you'd like to become a member and support our programming, please go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. Stay tuned now for Counterspin and have a great night.